The date is July 2nd. I'm Arthur S. Falls, and you're listening to Episode 7 of Beyond Bitcoin. Nothing you hear on this show is investment advice. The opinions you hear are only those of the people expressing them. If you find yourself getting a bit worked up about what you hear said, just chill out. Our opinions may differ, but we're all on the same team. In the sagely words of Adam B. Levine, who may be quoting someone else, all opinions are not equal. Some are a very great deal more robust, sophisticated, and well-supported in logic and argument than others. I'm just going to recycle in, uh, an interview I had uh, months ago, not many months ago, maybe two months ago, with Adam Krellenstein of Counterparty, which seems really relevant right now with the release of LTB coin and all this other carry-on going on. I'm really interested in the Counterparty protocol at the moment, and I've been so focused on BitShares and NXT that it feels like it might be time for a bit of a shift. I hope you guys enjoy what you hear. Bit of a blast from, a, from the past for those hundred or so people who actually have heard this. While I was talking to other people about interviewing you, I actually got the impression that many people haven't really become acquainted with Counterparty as a, uh, as a project. And I was wondering if we can actually talk just a bit more about Counterparty, the project itself. I'm fine with that. As a quick point, the, the op return controversy is very much a, a red herring. It's not very important. People, some people were confused. They thought that Counterparty wouldn't work without the op return in, in the Bitcoin protocol. And that's just not true. It would be mutually beneficial for us and for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin devs and so on, to, to have it. But it's, it's not important. Um, it, it'd, it'd be slightly nicer. I don't know if that just you know addresses the point. It's interesting you say that because... My understanding was that you guys can use the additional keys in, uh, in another kind of transaction. Was that the case? Yeah, we use public keys, yeah, in, um, in other kinds of transaction. I mean, we want, we want to store data in the, the blockchain. Um, we want to do it as cheaply and as cleanly as possible. Op return is the best for, for again, for, for everyone involved. But there are some ideological uh, objections to using op return because they don't want to encourage other people's um, use of the blockchain in, I don't know, some certain ways, right? Um, they want they want to keep Bitcoin sort of pure financial transactions, even though Counterparty fits within that model. And so, we, yeah, we just, we use public keys in, in other kinds of transactions and it works fine. Yeah, I, I thought that might have been the case. I thought the op return seemed a really, like you said, clean way of doing it, but it, I didn't understand why it wouldn't just work the way you already had it, the system functioning. Sure, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's funny, yeah? Yeah, because uh, it's been there's such a huge buzz about this little controversy when really at the end of the day, it seems like it's just a bit of drama. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was certainly a bit of drama. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so I guess let's go all the way to the top. I know it's a Metacoin protocol. It's built on top of Bitcoin, obviously using storing information and transactions. You've got a distributed exchange, and you allow creation of user-designated assets, which can pay dividends. I was just looking at the wallet right now. And most interesting of all, for a lot of people, is that the base currency, XCP, was issued using proof of burn. Because that proof of, I mean, the idea of burning millions of dollars to generate a currency seems <laughs> a little bit radical. Sure, yeah. I'm pretty sure we're the first project to use proof of burn, and certainly we're the first that burned any amount. It seems extreme, right, um, and radical. I mean, yeah, Counterparty is, is uh, yeah, it's a, a very radical in its, in its 
I'd say, you know, near perfect commitment, perfect commitment, in fact, to decentralization. Um, there is, there are no magic addresses in the protocol um, that anyone has any control over. Um, I mean, the contrast is something like MasterCoin or even Ethereum, where they're doing a more fundraising type approach, and certain people get a lot of money from certain other people, from people who, who you know, who want to create the coin or who want to invest. Counterparty does none of that. The goal is to keep it as true as possible to Bitcoin's vision of a decentralized, fair currency, and proof of burn is, is like, is the, I think, the right way to do it. Because that way, the success you hope to derive from developing the platform is entirely dependent on the success of the platform itself, right? Yes. Um, and, and it's not necessary for, for fundraising. Um, I mean, we've, we've bootstrapped the project. Um, I mean, we have an incentive to work on it because we, own, we, we burned some XCP, pretty much everyone involved. And um, yeah, like it's, it's unnecessary. It opens up for legal questions because, you know, there's a promise of, of returns implicitly when you say, you know, give us your money and, you know, you'll do well. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, yes, exactly. Do you think there is a kind of a promise of returns issue with projects that raise money through their currencies? I'm not a lawyer, but MasterCoin, there certainly was. Um, I mean, explicitly in the MasterCoin white papers, there were, you know, I mean, you know, J.R. Willett said, like, my goal will be to, you know, do well for MasterCoin investors, right? And he used that term, investors. Ethereum is, is different. They have a much more complicated model because they have those institutional investors um, who are given a, you know, a piece of the pre-mined pie. And then they have, you know, an IPO type thing, right, where the community at large can invest. And I think in both cases, yeah, it's it's you know seen as you know, no, they, they 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 don't use language that suggests that you know you're destroying that you're giving you're giving them funds for like the good of the project. There, you know, there's an incentive um, for users to to send the money, and that's for future returns. Okay, so moving on from the actual from proof of burn and and distribution like that, I'm interested in how these user defined assets work and how they're kind of created and brought into existence i've seen the the graphic i've seen you know the video and uh and the and the creation of the assets by the user but what actually takes place underlying that that allows a user to create an asset with all of these properties it's very simple the counterparty client is watching the blockchain right and they're looking at every transaction in every block and they see an asset issuance transaction right which is just it's a Bitcoin transaction with about 40, 60 bytes embedded in it. Um, and those bytes say, you're creating this asset, um, this many, it's divisible, it's callable, it's not callable, and that's about it. Um, it just says that you create this. And then every client recognizes this and adds that balance to the issuer's account, right? The issuer's address. So if, you know, address A issues you know, X amount of, ad, of asset B, then when, he, when it sees that transaction, it, it credits that balance and that's it. And as long as it does that deterministically, that's all that needs to happen. It's slightly more complicated because you can reissue assets and you have to like check for previous issuances, make sure that they accord in terms of rules and make sure that the, the asset hasn't been locked and so on. But that's all handled when it sees that message. Okay, so that's, that's client side. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Everything, and, everything um, is client side. It's all... It's all yeah. So your use of the blockchain is more as a, a timestamping mechanism. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Like to trans- yes, um, yes, timestamping and, and proof of publication. I guess are the two the two services. 
it's it's you know all, all every transaction is ordered relative to all others. Um, it's, it, every transaction is ordered within a block, and then all blocks are in a strict order, and uh, and that's all that matters. And, and and the way the counterparty parses transactions, it goes block by block, transaction by transaction, absolutely linearly, um, for simplicity and robustness. Mastercoin, for instance, doesn't do that. It'll go back in time. Sometimes it'll see a transaction and go, wait a minute, was there another transaction that came before? Maybe. And it'll check. And that leads to complexity. Um, Counterparty reads each transaction has a a well-defined balance after every transaction. That's it. So I guess another thing I'm interested in is Mm -hmm. how do these, uh, a lot of these assets require external data feeds, right? Um, The assets don't require external data feeds. Um, There are data feeds in Counterparty. And bets are made on those feeds, but the assets themselves generally aren't. So if you issue an asset that's backed by gold, say, then the market price of that asset will generally tend towards the price of gold as determined by, you know, the market, as determined by the users and the holders of that of that of that asset. That's different from publishing an oracle, a price feed, okay. which will be used as the subject of a bet. Okay, you've got these uh, broadcasting and feed operators built into your uh, your system, right? Mm-hmm. So, how can you be sure of the integrity of the feed itself? Um, um, it does it come down to the reputation of the feed operator? Yes, it does. And there are two aspects to that. Um, one is that if the feed operator were ever to lie, it would be immediately obvious, right? I mean, you know, if you're publishing the price of gold in dollars, right, then it's very easy to tell when the price of gold isn't, you know, it's different from what it, you know, from from what it said, and that. I mean, and, and you know, you can do it even better because the you know the feed operator should say, "I'm getting my price from this at this exact time," right? And so, as long as you say, "At this exact time, I get this this price from exactly the source with the same level of precision," you can't you can't lie to anyone without everyone immediately knowing, um, and cancel and canceling their their bets and so on. So it's just not really a sure. It's just not really feasible to uh, yeah. You can't. There's no, there's no, you can't do anything. There's nothing hidden in, in any of it. I mean, if, if you want to publish a feed that has, you know, no basis in reality, right? That's just you know, a series of numbers, <laughs> yeah. and you say that, and you say that they're random. It's hard for someone to say that, you know, they're not random or they are random. I mean, you can still do a statistical analysis um, to see if, you know, they generally follow follow a random pattern. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's a bit more to it than something that's publicly available to be compared. Sure, um, and then and then there's just the general, you know, you you can just assume to a degree that the feed that the feed operator is is rational and in the long run he'll be more he'll be incentivized to be honest because it's possible to collect a fee uh, a fee yes. as a feed operator and, and you can collect any fee when the feed when a feed operator broadcasts broadcasts information he gets to pick whatever fee and so if the fees aren't high enough for him to justify being honest he'll raise the fee and you know do that um the, the market will find a price for feed operators of whatever kind um that will make it that will properly incentivize it this uh, that brings up this kind of uh, this idea of price discovery, which these these new protocols allow to take place for for things that otherwise weren't really able to experience price discovery. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how what's your what are your thoughts on that? I mean that's something that I find on the edge of uh, conversations, but it's a bit it's a bit opaque to me. Um, you mean you mean for the distributed exchange? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You need, I mean, you need an efficient market, right? You need a market with a where where the the dynamics of the market, right, and the fee system and the incentives all 
lead to a small spread and a convergence to a particular value given given you know certain market dynamics and and counterparty is designed first and foremost to have that be the case right for instance all all orders in counterparty are limit orders or something very similar to it and so you know if there's you know an order out for you know a, a low price an order out for high price and you create an opposite order you'll match the low price first so you'll have a well-defined order book uh, with a well-defined spread and preserve market depth as much as possible and so all the incentives will be in place for people to publish order, you know, publish uh, bids and asks at market prices or, or very near it. Does that, I don't know if that answers your question, yeah? It does to a point. It's actually, this is one of those, uh, one of those concepts. It's a wall that really needs, you really need to push through. Mm. I'm, I, I speak mean, personally. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there's, there's going to be, a, a, you know, liquidity issues in, in the near term, but but the the, the system and, and the, the the distributed exchange are designed to scale very well, and they will scale to, yeah, large numbers of transactions and and have price convergence. I see you're having a. There are a few hundred a day, or at least at least a couple of hundred a day. Yes. Um, I was looking on the, on the exchange there, which is that it's really interesting to see that there's that activity taking place, uh, at this stage, because you guys are working with Let's Talk Bitcoin, right? Yes, we are. Um, they're doing heavy testing on uh, testnet um, in preparation for the launch of LTB coin. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean they're 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 like they're they're doing great stuff, good testing, and they're I mean they're yeah they're planning on really using the platform the way it's meant to be used, right? I mean with the you know the trivial issuance of a useful asset, and um, yeah, detection of redemption and all of those useful features. You know, backing it with something interesting and hard to do otherwise. Yeah, um, it's it's fascinating that um, it's. Yeah. To my knowledge, the Let's Talk Bitcoin or the LTB coin is—it's uh, the first real third-tier currency that's been produced. You know, something built using one of these second-generation cryptocurrency tools. Yes, the only—I guess the only other. Um, well, there, I mean, there are a couple other candidates. One is XBTC. He's currently working on on, on issuing tokens representing Bitcoin, so you can trade the tokens representing Bitcoin instead of Bitcoin itself. On the distributed exchange, which allow because you're not trading, you're trading in counterparty asset for counterparty asset is actually a little bit easier and faster and smoother and cheaper. Yeah, so so he's so he's doing a, he's doing a token and uh, and that's that's open today, and you can trade uh, XBTC. I'll have to go have a look at yeah, that. Yeah, um, he's doing he's doing very cool things um, on the platform. Yeah. So how does he tie the um, the value of the XBTC to the BTC? When you send him BTC at a particular address, he sends you XBTC and vice versa. Minus minus a point one percent fee or something very small. Right, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how they uh, that's how they back. That makes sense. Sure. Okay, that's that's another thing. I wasn't I wasn't aware that so much was going on was going on there. Oh yeah. Hey, what do you think of these ideas of side chains and and tree chains with with counterparty? And how do you think they will affect counterparty's design going forward? Oh, so I was actually the, this Bitcoin. Um, expo in uh, MIT Bitcoin Expo today, and Gavin was asked that question. Gavin Andreessen, and he called, and and he 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 was exactly correct. He called them both half-baked ideas. I guess for the best, the best treatment, you know, proper treatment of the subject, or at least side chains, is done by Vitalik Buterin for Bitcoin Magazine maybe a week or two ago, um, and it's and it's correct. Uh-huh. Side chains aren't they're half they're 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 incomplete. There's no they're, they're not a proposal for anything in particular. Um, they're not. They're not any new technology. They won't push innovation, and they don't actually hold. Any, they don't actually make anything easier for counterparty or for Bitcoin 2.0 in general. For instance, I mean, so 
side chains, as as discussed today, um, despite all the hype, are really just merged mined chains with a two way peg to Bitcoin, right? They're chain. They're, you understand? I do. So would that yeah. would that represent a like a security bottleneck? Do you think? So so the, the, there's a big big security problem in merge mining. Uh, merge mining you, you, um, merge mining is is how Namecoin is run, for instance. Yeah, yeah, I know the one. And merge mining allows you to, at some level to have the you know the to, to make it to incentivize Bitcoin miners to mine your coin in addition to Bitcoin at the same time without losing any money. The problem is that it also makes it free for those miners to attack your coin, right? So any and so so if you you know if, you, if you're a bit if you're a, a, a chain with merge mine with Bitcoin, that anyone mining Bitcoin can attack your coin for free without losing any money at all. Unless everyone's on board. Yes, yes. I mean, so all the other ones could be on board, um, but any miner can attack the sidechain, right? But if, if, if everyone else is on board, then yes, you have, you have, you have, you know, ideally all, all of the, all of the mining power for the network, right? So the incentive mechanisms are a little questionable, especially as you get up to 90 or 100 percent of the, of the mining speed of Bitcoin. You know, as you ramp up, if, you know, once you're 20 or, t- you know, 10, 20 percent of the, of the hash power of Bitcoin, then any mining pool in Bitcoin can, can kill you off for free. And they might, they, they, they might have a strong incentive to do so. So, and, and that problem isn't really resolvable. Um, it's, it's, it's based on the economics of merge mining. That's merge mining. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah, that's merge mining. Like, and, and it's, and it's a neat idea, but it, you know, it, it's not actually <laughs> good. Yeah. What about then? Uh, what about tree chains? I'm kind of just pumping you for ideas that relating to these really current subjects because it seems like Counterparty seems like such a complete product. You know, I mean, looking at the exchange, yeah, it's really interesting to think kind of where where this whole meta meta protocol thing's going and and how the uh, how it might evolve with the space. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so the reason the Counterparty is is so complete is because it lets Bitcoin do all of the hard work. It, it it really does inherit all the security of Bitcoin without any you know any any real problems. Um, you know it, it's limited in the amount of data that it can transfer in a message, but you know financial transactions are small. They're you know eighty bytes is easy. Yeah, so that's so that's I mean so it's, it's like very easy to develop and, and iterate on counterparty to you know add a new message type or whatever. I don't have any particularly I don't I don't have a particularly good understanding of tree chains ex- except that I mean you have the same problem where you, you have the side chains or with anything else, which is that you're still building off of Bitcoin. Um, and you're still limited by Bitcoin and by compatibility with Bitcoin. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about three chains as used for speeding up the block time, um, that's a neat idea, like Ghost, the Ghost, the Ghost protocol, I think it's called. Um, that's a good, it's, you know, it, it deserves to be explored. And it's so go, the Ghost protocol is where false or unused blocks are allowed to count toward the proof of work. The, yes, uh... exactly. And that's and that's you know the correct direction to go in. It's Absolutely worth exploring. It's not. It's not so relevant to counterparty. Counterparty could go into an alt chain. It could go into a side chain. It could go into something else. But the reason that we built on counterparty, besides the, all the benefits we get, you know, in terms of development speed um, and security, is that first mover advantage matters a lot. Um, worse is better, and and it's important to release often and, and iterate iterate often, right? Release early, release often, and. If it were ever necessary, we could move to another chain. It wouldn't be hard. You freeze balances. You you know you release a new client. Yeah. Everyone agrees that it's the obvious thing to do, and you do it. And you know you can move to a side chain with faster transaction times and faster block times and more space for you know hiding data in the blockchain and so on. But it's not 
it's not enough. There's no compelling, you know, compelling innovation there, not at all. I mean, even even the Ghost Protocol will only theoretically improve block times by maybe an order of magnitude. You know, you're not going to get down to one or two second block times, uh, and, and you'll never get there simply because of the speed of light. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's a pretty hard limitation there. Yes, it is. <laughs> When you think of the future of cryptocurrency, are you thinking of, of more blockchains or more efficient uses of, uh, of the Bitcoin blockchain? I lean towards the latter. Um, I think that, that the first mover advantage that Bitcoin holds is pretty compelling. Bitcoin, and, and that in, in computer science and technology in general, good enough is what matters. It's, it's, you know, it's Linux that everyone uses. It's not Plan 9. However much I love the design of Plan 9. People don't use microkernels. Um, they use they use Linux and it's crufty and bloated and you know it's the biz, you know, the bizarre model instead of the cathedral and that's and that's what Bitcoin is it's it's not particularly elegant it's it uses a lot of brute force and it's I mean it's yeah it's like it's incredibly inefficient but it works right I mean SHA two fifty six as a, as a mining algorithm why I mean the, you know, it, it's very odd right and and more of a, like not even SHA two fifty six double SHA two fifty six right. As, as if that mattered, it's 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 a worse is better thing, and Bitcoin certainly certainly in terms of institutional support, mind share, security is far beyond anything else. I mean, even Litecoin, right, which is the second biggest blockchain by hash power, by by a significant margin, has a security dramatically less than that of Bitcoin. And and if you start moving away from something like Bitcoin, then you start to have you know a whole new set of problems that nascent coins and nascent chains will will have to encounter. For instance attacks by botnets, right? And and other things that, you know, Bitcoin just sort of, you know, grew past those, right? Um, I mean, there, there were times in Bitcoin's history when a million dollars worth of ASICs could kill, the, could kill the, the industry, just could kill the chain, right? Not any longer. We've sort of, we've sort of because yeah. it was the first, it got past all of that. Because by the time people figured out what you could do, it was already too late. And and, and so that, 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 that really matters. And blockchains are, are generally, you know, in that vein. They are all that worse is better stuff. Um, and that's why we built Counterparty on, on, on Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, there might be other useful, descent, you know, uh, de- you know, decentralized consensus algorithms out there. I mean, the, nothing, no decentralized currency is ever going to be very efficient. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very inefficient in general terms to just broadcast every transaction to everyone and have them store it forever. And, that, and that's effectively what Bitcoin does. And, and, and a large part of that is effectively what any cryptocurrency will have to do. Right, everyone has to be able to check the balance of any or any other address, and that's going to be less efficient than an alternative. And so I, I'm I'm inclined to say that there will be Bitcoin as this inefficient, low frequency, high reliability, high security, high availability network, and then you'll have off-chain protocols and transactions right, yeah. and layers that do other things. Right, faster transaction times, insurance, more complicated contracts, and so on. One layer, of course, one such layer, of course, is counterparty. You're thinking of a future where we have this central, uh, like you said, robust and proven system in Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, in the long term, you know, Bitcoin will be an interbank protocol, right? It'll be, a, it'll be a, you know, a digital gold, right? And who trades gold, right? Banks trade gold, right? And, you know, people trade, trade receipts for gold, right? They trade, they trade gold tokens or, you know, gold slips or whatever, right? No one, no one actually hands around gold, right? Because it's inefficient. And, and I think that's how I see it. Um, it'll be, I mean, it'll always be, it'll always be cheaper than a lot of other things. I see what you're saying. So the actual load, 
because it's such a clunky old system. I mean, <laughs> it's such a clunky system. Sure, yeah, fine. I mean, sure, but it's, like, it certainly isn't. Is nothing like cutting edge in terms no, of computer and, science. Um, it, it, right? And yeah. it just even sending money with, uh, you know, sending money from my phone, sending a Bitcoin from my phone to another address, you, you've still got to wait. Yeah, I mean, ten, 10 minutes, like, you know, it's, it's, it's better, right? And it's good enough that people and, might start using it for e-commerce at a serious scale, right? And I think that they will. But it's not even close to optimal. No, and, and you couldn't use that point of, point of sale in a store without, you know, without compromising the security of it. Significant risk, yeah, um, of, of chargebacks. I mean, or, you know, or, or transaction. Or, yeah, I, I mean, Bitcoin isn't particularly well suited to, to point of sale, in my opinion. But that, Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting interesting stance i mean that it's that's how it kind of seems to me but there's such a drive for uh for vendors to accept bitcoin you see these uh these stickers on a subway and it just yeah i mean i mean people are it's the same it's the same thing i mentioned like it's it's this whole first mover first mover advantage right so right now it's it's actually very hard to execute a double spend in bitcoin um a zero confirmation zero confirmation transaction right whatever that is um in bitcoin is not very it's is actually pretty reliable right now because miners are all using the same vanilla bitcoin software and none of them have patched their software or modified it in any way to accept double spends with higher fees or whatever and that's a very much a temporary state a temporary circumstance which as the market gains maturity will evaporate and it, it drives adoption right now but in the long run it's just not going to be the case yeah, I mean that—that's the advantage of having it, right? You know, it, it's this nascent technology, and everyone's using it for you know buying coffee at the shop. But you know, they could easily walk out and you know walk out of the coffee shop and reverse the transaction, and ninety-five percent of the time they'd be okay. But that said, you know, Bitcoin still offers an incredibly compelling solution for international remittances, for and and for you know e-commerce, I guess in general. Yeah, I would have expected to see the remittance market with Bitcoin take off by now. I guess I do see that something like that requires. An options contract that might be deployed by counterpart or using counterparty just to yes. insure the money. But yeah, why do you think that hasn't taken off already? I'm not sure, but I, my guess is that um, the people that use remittances are generally not techno tech technology early adopters. I mean, Bitcoin could do wonderful things for the unbanked of the world, right? But it's but it's it, they're not the low hanging fruit. It's it's rather Silicon Valley, New York. I don't know, you know, West, you know, westernized, civilized, you know, broadband using smartphone holding world that's going to get on Bitcoin first. If for no other reason that it's more usable to them. Um, I mean, the blockchain is 19 gigabytes and, you know, you know, technology awareness and um, familiarity is higher in that demographic. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, so Bitcoin isn't a very compelling option for consumers as a rule. You know, if I had to purchase something on the internet, I'd be hard. You know, when I do, I'm, I'm sometimes I go with credit cards and sometimes I use Bitcoin. For the merchant, it's, it's there's no question, right? Because they have to deal with the chargebacks and because they have to, they have to foot the bill in credit card fees. But for the merchant, it's sort of a wash. People aren't using Bitcoin today because it's a necessity. They're doing it because they can, because it's interesting and new and has a lot of promise, an enormous amount of promise. But as I mean, I think in general, it's not always the people that will benefit most from the development of technology that adopted first it has to be made available to them first i guess yeah have you seen any options contracts relate pegging to currency i mean there, there are i don't know a couple centralized exchanges that'll do it um icbit will do it i think 
um, I don't know, op- options. I mean, they'll, they'll do, I think you can short Bitcoin um, or do, you know, simple uh, simple futures contracts, I think. Not sure. Um, is that what you mean? You mean like, you know, just services that provide that, that feature? Um, well, I'm thinking more services that utilize that feature to transfer money internationally or, you know, to ensure their, uh, to ensure their transactions. Oh, no, I haven't seen any of that. I, no, I don't think so. Um, that yeah. seems like that's a key piece of the puzzle. Sure, yeah, and, and that's part of what Counterparty's you know, looking at is, is, is making peer-to-peer, right, making anyone be able to create a CFD for Bitcoin against any other currency, you know, trivial, right, and, and free, effectively. Um, right now, there, there are very, very... Um, I don't know, narrow bottlenecks, um, you know, for usage of things like, you know, options to hedge against, you know, options or, or just general, you know, derivatives to hedge against volatility risk and so on. Um, I mean, you know, there, there, you know, there are a couple insurance, you know, there's Zappo does insurance and if you buy something on Coinbase, it'll, it'll, you know, it'll, 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 it'll take the volatility for you. It'll handle it for you for the, you know, for the couple days it takes for your ACH transfer to go through or whatever you use SIPA. Yeah. Um, but not really. No, it's not. It's not a mature market in terms of financial tools. Yeah, I guess that's uh, that's kind of where we are, isn't it? And mm-hmm. and well, I mean, you guys, you guys addressed just that uh, just that issue. How long? When did you guys release? Three was it three months ago? Um, we released the software on January second, I believe. Um, we started the burn that day too. Um, yeah, uh, that, so that was the command line client. Then we did the the, the web wallet. Uh, maybe a month ago. The the web wallet's amazing. I mean, using that, of I uh, I lost one of the one of the words from my uh, mnemonic. Yeah. I went to type it in, and it came up short. I only had eleven words, and um, I posted on the forum. I said, "Hey guys, is there any way anyone can help oh, me?" Oh, I saw that. I didn't answer. Okay, yeah. Oh, but someone did, and uh, I got yeah. access. I can't believe that. That. I mean, I don't really, I'm not that literate. I don't know how that the process works, but uh, to recover that kind of information. But that was pretty amazing, I thought. Sure, yeah. Hey, and right now I'm looking at the counter wallet. Uh, how do I create an asset? So you, do, you, do, you, do you have to have 0.5 XCP? I've got that. Uh, okay, then, then for, so there's like a bar, each bar represents an address. In the right, it says address actions. There's a drop down menu, click on that. Okay, here we go. Address actions. Create asset right there. It's as easy as that. Yeah. Asset name, description, quantity, divisible, callable. Ah, oh, man, that is amazing how you do that. Yes, and it's there. It says create asset. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. If you have any other you know, questions, follow-ups, other podcast articles you'd like to write, um, let me know. Absolutely. That's it for this week, folks. Pertinent websites can be found in the notes. Check out the weekly developer hangouts every Saturday morning, US time, on our Mumble server. Setup instructions can be found on beyondbitcoin.fm. Thanks to the Beyond Bitcoin community for the support, Cesis for the music, and Adam Krellenstein for the content. Recording of the Kia, courtesy of the Department of Conservation. <laughs>